The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Hey, if you have your Bibles, uh, grab them. We're going to be in Luke 9 this morning. Uh, You thought you all had gotten rid of me and that I was headed out to Granada Hills, but I'm back. I'm like Bob Wiley. I'm like Bob Wiley. You can never get rid of me. But what about Bob? Anyone? No? Okay. All right. Okay. It's one of my favorite movies. Uh, Luke 9. Let's start there in verse 10. And we will go to verse 17. I'll read it for us this morning. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, you give them something to eat. They answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down, taking the five loaves And the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So we're to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this moment we have right now to come to your word. We believe that what your word says about you is true. We believe that your word is authoritative, that it's good, that it has nourishment for us this morning. So I pray that by your word, you would renew our minds, that you would strengthen what's weak in our lives and in our hearts and help us to walk in a worthy manner of you this morning by your gospel of grace. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, I was uh, sitting at a, a little coffee shop in town. Some of you may know it. It's, uh, it's called Boulevard Cafecito. It's on Magnolia, in Magnolia Park. And there's a, a place where you can look that there's a window right in front of you and it looks right over, out over Magnolia. And I was sitting there doing some work uh, and suddenly a, a, a young man walked in. Couldn't have been more than 20. He was wearing uh, flip-flops with socks on and he had like sweatpants on and uh, didn't think much of him until I saw that in his hand, he had a massive sum of money, like larger than you should see someone carrying and open. And uh, he sat down right next to me, to my surprise, and said, hey man, do you know the way to the AT&T store? And I said, why do you have so much money in your hand right now? Uh, what are you thinking? And he said, dude, I'm just trying to find the AT&T store. AT&T store. I need someone to help me. I'm like, okay, maybe he's going to go buy like 45 iPhones. I don't know what's going on. Um, but I told him, I'm like, yeah, all right, uh, Apple's uh, AT&T store right down the road, right next to Pizza Studio. You can't miss it. Go down. He looks at me and goes, hey, thanks, man. I really appreciate your help. Hey, you know what? Because you helped me today, this is yours. It's 10 grand in $100 bills. And I looked at him like, What? what are you talking about? There's no way this is real. You're not, and he goes, look up, look out the window. And uh, he's like, I'm a YouTuber. That guy out the window filming you on his iPhone right now is, uh, is part of my YouTube channel. And we're giving away 10 grand today to one random person just for doing a simple act of kindness. And you're that person. And I'm like, so those of you that, this is where it gets really funny because those of you that know me well are going to be going, I'm not the most excitable person, right? 
uh, it's just not my nature to like flip out and I'm just, I'm fairly reserved. And so I think he was a little disappointed because I was just like, I kept going, no, this isn't real, bro. You're not giving me 10 grand. There's no way. Uh, there's no way you're going to do this. And he said, no, bro. And I, I could see that I wasn't excited enough. So he reaches into his uh, jacket pocket and he says, hey, you know what? Here's another 10 grand, 20 grand today. This is yours. What do you think? What do you think? And the crazy part, Burb- only in Burbank, but there's like three or four other people in this coffee shop and none of them even looked up. <laughs> They're just like, whatever, this happens all the time, apparently, you know? I'm, I'm just saying to myself, kid, I'd love to see you try this in downtown LA. What are you thinking? But no wonder you're doing this in Burbank. But he's, he's like, seriously, count it, count. He's trying to get me worked up. And so here's what's going through my head. I'm like, okay, here's the thing. I know I'm not excitable. If there's any chance this is real at all, and it's for his YouTube channel, I want to at least get excited enough that he's going to want to use the footage and actually give me the money. But I also have this thing going on in my head where I'm like, I'm 95% sure this is fake and I don't want to get taken as a fool and he just walks out of the room and I'm in here like, yeah, thank you for $20,000. And then he walks out, you know? So I'm trying to ride the line to keep some dignity and be excitable enough. And after about five minutes, you know, he's like, count it, count it, count it. So I'm counting $100 bills. One, two, three, four, trying to kind of play the part. And then eventually he's like, this is awesome, right, bro? I'm like, yeah. He's like, thanks. And he just grabs the money and walks out of the building. All of it. Just walks out. And I'm like, what just happened? And as he walks out, he pokes his head back in. He's like, hey, here's some cupcakes. <laughs> he gives me a box of cupcakes and he says, hey, can I use the footage anyways? And I'm like, no, you can't use the footage anyways. You just took me. Like, you can't just pretend to give someone 20 grand and then walk out. And then I called, I, I called Matt, Pastor Matt, and I told him what happened. I'm like, bro, you will not believe what just happened to me. And he's like, bro, you just missed out on 20 grand because you didn't get excited enough. I feel so sorry for you. He's like, I would have been doing cartwheels. 20 grand. I'm like, Hey man, I can't, I, I am who I am. But on it, and then that happened. Then I, saw, I started thinking to myself, I'm like, man, what if I really did like on the off chance that there was any chance that he was actually going to give me 20 grand. What if I really forfeited that? Like that could put me in down payment for a house territory. Like that's a life changing amount of money here in Los Angeles. This kid just pretended to be giving me. And I promise you they were real hundred dollar bills. And I just, and so I started having this little war within myself. I had to recognize and go, man, Am I satisfied with what I have? Because when I actually had the idea of $20,000 put in front of me, I was like, man, that would make life better. And then he, and it was gone. And I'm going, man, am I satisfied with what I have? Do I actually believe that Jesus and what he's seen fit for my daily needs right now is enough for me right now? And more than that, that he's enough. See, getting to glimpse all of that money pulled something out of my heart that I didn't even know was there. And uh, I found it to be a really interesting thing. And as we come to this text this morning, we're going to see, and that's the question I want us to carry this morning into our time. Is Jesus enough? Is what he has given to you right now enough in his mighty hands? Is it enough for you? So with that said, let's let's take that question to the text this morning. Is Jesus enough? Is what he's given us enough? Verse 10, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. So the disciples have just been commissioned by Jesus for the first time. He's, he's trained them up. It was our last series. We're moving into a new series now called The Front Line, where Jesus' disciples enter into ministry on their own. They're sent out with Jesus. And we're told here in chapter 9, verse 1, that he fills them with spiritual authority to go and cast out demons, to heal diseases, and to proclaim the kingdom of God, we read in verse 6. And so they go out, and they're doing this in power, and they're amazed by what's happening through them. I mean, I've had the privilege of feeling used in my spiritual gifting at times with teaching and other things that God has gifted me to do. But I've never had an experience like this where I've been personally filled with Jesus with the power to cast out demons and to touch people and heal them. So I've got to think these normal men, fishermen, 
right? Uh, tax collectors, sinners, these normal men are suddenly filled with this kind of power and they're out pouring it out. And this incredible authority is being exercised through them. And the first thing I want us to draw from the text this morning is this, that they derived the spiritual authority not from themselves, but from Jesus. And accordingly, all authority, spiritual authority comes from intimacy with Jesus, All spiritual authority is the fruit of a heart that is intimately attached to and abiding in Jesus because Jesus is the source of all authority. You ever been around those kind of people who just, when they speak, there's something different on it. Like there's just, there's something about what they say that nourishes you, that that has a certain sort of um, spiritual power to it that revives your soul and makes you long for Jesus. That's the fruit of time in the word. That's the fruit of an abiding relationship and obedience with Jesus. And I gotta say, it feels like those people are becoming rarer and rarer, but there are all sorts of people in the church that desire to lead, desire positions of prominence, desire positions of authority, but do not have a a complementary and equal desire simply for the person of Jesus, to fight for a knowledge of Jesus, to abide in the love of Jesus, to rest in the words of Jesus, and to desire prominence spiritually, to desire positions of leadership and authority, but not desire intimacy with Jesus is ultimately utilitarian in nature, and it's ultimately futile, and it's ultimately how people end up getting themselves in trouble in ministry. But we see here that the disciples have gone out for the first time and they've cast out demons and they come back to Jesus and they're weary. They're in need of rest. They're physically and emotionally and spiritually weary. And that's why we see here in Jesus that that he leads them out to a remote fishing town called Bethsaida for some rest. He leads them into a time of rest. He's aware of their needs. They're weary. They withdraw. Intense seasons of ministry call for seasons of rest. Hear me this morning. Rest is not a sin. Rest is a necessity. Rest is good. Rest is a spiritual discipline. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do in life is take a nap. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do in life is get out in nature and just look at God's beauty and unwind and let your soul breathe. We need this, especially in this concrete jungle we live in. It's a spiritual discipline. Do you have margins in your life for rest? Jesus leads his disciples into these kind of margins. But here we see in verse 11, the crowds learned about it and followed him. They followed him. So here in this moment, you need to understand in the four gospels we see in this moment in Luke 9, this is the pinnacle of Jesus's popularity. This is the highest moment of his social clout. This is the moment where he is trending number one on Twitter. Like he's got all the hashtags associated with his name. The leaders are wondering who Jesus is. Herod is wondering who Jesus is. The Jewish uh, authorities are wondering who Jesus is and crowds are following. He's been performing miracles, healing the sick. Picture in our time and day, if someone came in with all the needs around us and actually had power to heal heal, actually had authority over spiritual darkness. This is happening and people are obsessed with Jesus. But we see in John's account, in John 6, he tells the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And we see that immediately after Jesus performs this miracle, which we're going to get to, Jesus intentionally starts thinning his crowd out. Jesus isn't trying to build a mega church. Jesus thins his crowd out intentionally. He starts saying some things to these people that are following him to test them, and some people leave and desert him, and he does this intentionally. John 6, 26, after this miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 people with bread, he says to this crowd, Jesus said, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, 
but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He says, I'm the bread of life in this text. It's, it's, it's in Capernaum and he, he makes a dialogue on how he is the bread of life and how people must literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. Now hear me, we hear that and we go, okay, we're churched, most of us. We understand that means communion and, what, and it's a symbol. But think about in this time hearing this without context, he's saying to people, you need to eat me. You need to eat my body and drink my blood. It's a good way to thin your church out. It's a good way to get people going, okay, dude, peace. No, thank you. Not in on that, right? Jesus is testing people. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus understands that these people don't want him. They're not seeking him. Their hearts aren't fixed on righteousness. They want his stuff. They want the miracles. And he says, you're here for my stuff. If I don't give it to you, you will leave. See, Jesus understands this, and this has been true of Christianity since the beginning of church history and the time of Jesus. Christianity is a religion that thrives on the margins, It's a religion that thrives on the margins. It's a movement that thrives when it is attacked. It's a movement that does really poorly and gets itself in a lot of trouble when it starts getting in bed with power. Christianity is meant for the margins. It's where it thrives. So Jesus and his disciples in this moment see this crowd following them. And Jesus and his disciples have an agenda for rest, but it's gonna be interrupted by people. So Jesus and his disciples had sailed across the lake on a boat. It's not that big of a lake. People have followed them around on foot and their desire is rest. Their agenda is rest. Uh, When I agreed to uh, a pastor in Granada Hills, the first need we had was to renovate the property. It had not been touched in a long time. A ton of work to do. And I, I poured myself out into it. Some of you were there with us a lot of Saturdays just doing a lot of work. There was a lot to do. And it was an intense season of ministry for me, a physical labor. I, I'm far from a handyman. <laughs> but, uh, but I learned a lot through the process. And, uh, and it wore me out, to be honest. And so uh, last November, when we were nearing the end of it, I, I said to Brooke, my wife, I said, babe, we need, I need a rest. I need rest. It's been an intense season. So we got ourselves a few nights uh, in a hotel up in Pismo Beach, one of our favorite places, took the girls up there, just us, and got away. And I want to say this. Uh, I, I love y'all very, very much. I love Story City Church. But in that moment, on those four days, if you had followed us <laughs> and decided that you needed prayer or ministry I would have struggled with it a little bit. It would have tested my patience because this was a time of recouping for me. And I've got to think in this moment, Jesus' disciples are men and they're feeling similar things. Jesus, we just poured out. We just did all this work. You've led us into isolation and these crowds are here following. This is me time. You know, Peter had just downloaded Candy Crush and he was ready to rest. They were watching Ice Road Truckers, whatever it was. Something was going on. They were resting. You know, Nathaniel was reading Dostoevsky and judging everyone who was playing Candy Crush. Whatever's going on, but the disciples are resting. And this crowd comes, but we see that Jesus responds in a certain way. He welcomed them. He taught them. He healed them. Jesus permits impropriety in our pursuit of him. And what I mean by that, there's never a situation in our lives where we've exhausted our ability to come to Jesus for grace and mercy and strength. He longs for us to come to him. He wants to be wanted by us. He desires that we would annoy him with our pursuit. He, there's a parable about it of, of how there's, there's times when Jesus will just respond just because of our persistence. He wants us to be persistent in our pursuit of him. And it will, he will respond to that kind of pursuit. But are we pursuing Christ like that? He wants to be wanted, not because he needs to be needed. 
God's not some needy guy in the sky that needs our pursuit. He's self-sufficient. He's content into himself, the triune nature of the Trinity. He's full of joy. It's not that he needs us to need him. It's that he knows that we need to want him. He knows that our deepest need is to want him. And so he longs for us to pursue him. Verse 12, late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place. So the day's been passing. Jesus has been healing. Jesus has been uh, casting out demons. Jesus has been working miracles and teaching. And the disciples are watching the day pass by. It's kind of like when your vacation gets interrupted with somebody else's agenda. You're like, really, we have to go there? Like, I wanted to do this today. And they're like watching the crowd and they're thinking to themselves, well, it's, it's 4.30, sun's starting to go down and there's probably some mixed motives going on in the disciples right now. There's some mixed motives going on. There, there, there's probably definitely the thought of, uh, we're out in the countryside. This wasn't intended. There's nowhere for people to sleep. It's kind of cold. We don't have food. There's no dinner. But there's also probably this thing going on in them of like, Jesus, are we going to get our me time here? Like, when a, w- the sun's going to go down soon. Are you ready for our rest yet? See, these disciples are imperfect men. And generally, a rule for belonging and understanding and healthy involvement in a church is you need to understand that there is only one perfect man in the church, and it's Jesus Christ. There's only one perfect leader in the church, and it's Jesus Christ. And only those who know how utterly dependent they are upon Jesus for grace and mercy and strength will learn to lead well and find his power made perfect in weakness. You need to understand this, Story City. Don't make heroes out of men in the church. They will fail you over and over and over again, because the men you follow in the church are just co-sinners seeking Jesus. Don't make heroes out of men. Make a hero out of Jesus and seek him. We need to understand that Jesus is the source of life in the church. A quote by a, a, a pastor and theologian named Frank Lake, who was one of the pioneers of pastoral counseling in the UK on this that I love. In my view, church groups cannot be other than propositional filling stations or spiritual hothouses unless they are grounded in a realistic recognition that their members and their leaders are not only sinful people, but to some degree sick people. They all have their infirmities, their ailments, their diseased and ill-functioning parts, their minds and hearts, spirits and bodies. Their feelings and their wills are also, by basic Christian definition, fallen. To share in the human condition is to participate in a fallen humanity. Listen, we love to make things about men. We love heroes. We love to find men to follow. We love it. I worked at a mega church of 15,000 people before I came and worked at Story City. And it was a culture built around a mega pastor that was feared and revered and followed and dare not be crossed. And hear me, he started walking with, this man started walking with a strut. And any leader in the church that's walking with a strut is walking in delusion. Because only Jesus is the authority in the church, the leader in the church. And we are spring-loaded to make men our heroes. But hear me, Story City, make Jesus your hero. Focus your affection, your attention on Jesus and follow men who are following Jesus, period. Verse 13, he replied, you give them something to eat. So the disciples say, send them home, send them home. You know, me time, Jesus, and we don't have enough food for him. He says, his response kind of off, it's a backfire. Well, you give him something to eat. And they're thinking, what? 
Let's give them something to eat, Jesus. There's 5,000 men here, not counting women and children, so probably closer to 10 or 15,000 people. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. Question, can the disciples give these, this crowd something to eat? Do they have that ability? No. Does Jesus know this? Yes. So what is Jesus' point here? When Jesus asks impossible things of us, it's because he plans to do impossible things through us by faith and trust. By faith and trust. When Jesus asks something of me, of you, that I feel in my own strength, I cannot do. It's because Jesus is saying, if you will depend on me, if you will look to me, if you will keep your eyes fixed on me, the author and perfecter of your faith, I will supply your needs and meet this need through you. But you have to trust me. And when we fail to trust Jesus, we rob ourselves of the opportunity to see Jesus do supernatural things through us by his power. We have to trust, and the disciples had to trust in this moment. Jesus is saying, trust me, I've got this, and I'm inviting you in. It's impossible for you, but with God, all things are possible. See, his disciples will not be the source of the miracle, but they will be the means of its delivery. And simultaneously and similarly, it's not a word, similarly. How do you say that word, similarly? Similarly, God wants to do those kind of things through me and you. He wants to invite us into miracles. He wants to invite us into great works through faith and trust. He could accomplish them without us, but he invites us into them for our joy in him. That's why it's important we understand this. The call of Jesus to meet the needs of those around us is first and foremost a call to depend on and trust Jesus himself. Hear me, if you do not trust Jesus, you will not be a generous person. If you do not trust Jesus, you will not have eyes for the needs around you. Why? Because your eyes will be on your needs. You will have a scarcity mentality, not an abundance mentality. You will have a mentality of I need to hoard because life is insecure and God isn't enough. But if by faith and trust, we can look back at God's faithfulness in our lives, in all seasons, trust him for our resources, trust him to be our provider. Suddenly our hearts are open to say, God is my security. God is my provider. God is enough. And my resources are no longer my significance of my security, but a tool to be stewarded for his glory and his purposes. And that's going to happen in this moment. The disciples are going to depend on Jesus and we're going to see a miracle. Verse 13, they answered, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. We said that's about 15,000 total men, women, and children. John's account tells us that This five loaves and two fish belong to a small boy. This is the only miracle recorded in all four gospels, by the way. It belonged to a small boy, and most commentators agree that the reason this boy had these five loaves and two fish is he likely was there to provide the disciples' meal. He he had their dinner. (laughs) This was their dinner. They're saying, Jesus, all we have is our dinner, and it's five loaves and two fish. It's not enough. But Jesus responds, and I love this. I love this. He has a challenge for them. But the disciples raise objections. Number one, where are we going to eat? What are we going to eat? What we have is not enough. We don't have enough money. All the same reactions we have when Jesus asks extraordinary generosity of us. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. That's an interesting part, right? I I honestly had never really meditated on that. But Jesus had in this moment, he didn't just say, here, take the bread out. He said, have them sit down. Let's Let's bring some order here. Rows of 50 each. The the gospel of John says rows of 50 or 100. But he puts them in rows, whatever the case. 
And why? Why did Jesus do it this way? You know, he could have, there's a million ways he could have done this miracle. He could have just supernaturally transported the bread into people's stomachs and everyone's like, hey, we're not hungry anymore. He could have done an Easter egg hunt. Hey, bread all over the field in Easter eggs, go. There's bread. He could have just put the bread in a big pile in the middle and been like, bum rush the bread. Who can eat the most in 10 minutes? There's all sorts of ways. Jesus chooses order. He chooses to do this miracle with order. A couple reasons for this. One, this is the week of Passover. In Jewish culture, Passover is a big week. It's a big meal. But Jesus is being hated by the authorities at this point because this crowd is following him. So he's not in Jerusalem. He's not there for the Passover. So this is going to become a sort of Passover meal for Jesus and these people. And Jesus is saying, we're gonna conduct this Passover meal with reverence. We're gonna take this bread in a manner worthy of the Passover. Secondly, we just need to see that Jesus, when he supernaturally provides in our lives, he cares that we handle things with an order worthy of the God who gives it. He wants us to handle our resources with order. We should treat the gifts of God with reverence. We need to have order in our personal finances. Why? Because God is the provider and he asks it of us. We need to have order and finances in the church. We need to have care in what we choose to keep and what we choose to steward in generosity. Verse 15, the disciples did so. They begin to distribute the bread and everyone sat down in these rows of 50. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. So this is the way every pious Jewish family would start a meal with a blessing. Jesus blesses the food. He says, may God, the ever blessed one, bless what he has given us. That's the way every Jewish meal would have started in any pious religious Jewish home. But notice here that Jesus has his view not on what is lacking, but on what he has. How often is our gaze set on discontentment because of what we lack? Jesus, I only have this much. If I had this much, I'd be okay. Jesus is not focused on what he lacks. He says, with God, a little is enough. Hear me, if you are in a season of want right now, with God, it is enough. With God, it is enough. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 11 says this, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I think it's a sober moment and a healthy moment for us to look and recognize the culture that we live in hardwires us for discontentment. It hardwires us to look at what we don't have and not at how much we have and the fact that most of us are some of the richest people in this planet. We live in the richest culture that's ever graced the planet Earth. We have more comforts than any culture has ever had and yet we are some of the most discontent people that have ever walked on the planet Earth. That's why so many of us will find that when we go on mission trips to third world countries or places that have so much less than us, we'll be shocked to see that these people living in the dirt without plumbing and running water have more joy in their lives than us in our consumeristic American culture. Every day we see 5,000 ads from the moment we step out our door hardwiring us, telling us what product we need to be content, to be happy, to have significance. Hear me, discontentment and ingratitude, it's not, a, it's not about what you have or don't have. It's about, your, it's about a poverty of soul. 
Some of the most rich people in the world are the most discontent people in the world. Some of the movie stars that have everything that some of you young actors in this room believe you are after are so miserable right now that they're insufferable because they've reached the top, they have everything, and they've realized they're still just them and they're not happy and satisfied and what they thought was gonna be found was not there. Poverty and discontentment are not about what we have or what we lack entirely. They are often about what is going on in our heart and is Jesus enough and is God enough? Is God enough? Is Jesus enough? Has he taken care of you? Did he mean what he said in Matthew 6 when he said, look at the birds of the field. They don't sow, they don't labor, and yet your father takes care of them. Look at the lilies of the field. They're prettier than Solomon in all of his glory. If your father takes care of the flowers of the field and the sparrows, will he not care for you? Are you not of much more value than them? Can you hear the words of Jesus spoken over you this morning that he's enough, that he cares for your needs, that we don't need to worry? Jesus receives this with gratitude and it is this gratitude that empowers the miracle that God is about to do. Gratitude for what we have always turns it into enough. How did Jesus do this miracle, I wonder? Have you ever wondered that? Like, I, I gotta think, on the list of miracles, this would be high up for me. I mean, he, seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead would have been awesome. There's all, any of them would have been amazing. But think about this. I just wanna know how he did it. Like, he's got a loaf of bread, and he's just multiplying it. And I just wonder, was he like kind of hiding it? Like, whoop, there's some more, whoop, there's some more. Was he, I, I, I really would love to know how Jesus did this miracle. But there's a little hint for us in the Greek that I, that I learned this week. In Mark and Luke, the tense of the verb rendered gave here is an imperfect verb, which means it's continual. It signifies that he gave and kept on giving. He gave and kept on giving. So it wasn't this one handoff. The disciples had to continue coming back to Jesus for more and more. And they would go distribute it. And then they'd have to come back for Jesus. And somehow he's got more bread again. And they're taking it out. And he's continuing to give the bread to these disciples. See, the miracle, in order for the miracle to continue, the disciples had to continue returning to Jesus, the source of the miracle. And hear me, in our lives, we have to learn to continually return to Jesus. We are so hardwired to go, well, I had a good day today with Jesus. I'm good now. See you next week. And we go out and we start feeling the worry and the anxiety and the fear and the letdowns and struggling with sin. And finally we go, oh, I messed up so bad. I'll go back to Jesus now. Hear me, coming to Jesus in the Christian life, if it's going to be lived in a healthy way, and, and hear me, to be lived in a healthy way, the Christian life is miraculous because of our flesh being overcome. It's a miraculous thing. And it happens when we abide, remain, return to Jesus day by day, moment by moment. We keep coming to Jesus for bread, for life. The victory we are waiting for in our life is found in returning to Jesus moment by moment by moment by moment by moment, over and over again. You've returned, return again. You've already walked away. Freedom is found in returning to Jesus moment by moment by moment by moment. Through prayer, through meditation, through focus, through obedience, we return to Jesus and we find that he multiplies what we have and our portion becomes greater because he becomes our portion. And every human heart, like I just said, is spring-loaded towards self-sufficiency and self-condemnation. It's spring, we are spring-loaded towards self-sufficiency, which means this, we get things right, we feel good about ourselves for that day, cool, boom, spring flops, I'm good. I don't need you anymore, Jesus, I got this now. Strut starts. 
gonna walk, it's called self-righteousness. I'm gonna walk in my own strength now, we fall. And then the days, bad days, man, I cannot believe I talked to my kids that way. I cannot believe I talked to my wife that way. I cannot believe I looked at that. I cannot believe I put that in my body. Oh, I'm awful, I'm a terrible person, I'm a terrible Christian, God could never love me. Self-condemnation, we fall off the horse in both directions over and over and over again. And only a daily abiding and returning to Jesus will keep the gospel at the center of our hearts in a way that keeps us from walking in self-condemnation or self-sufficiency. Only the gospel can humble us to know that God loved us because he loved us, because he chose to love us, because of no merit of our own. It will tell us that we're so loved by God that he gave himself, his life for us, and it will lift us up without inflating us. And only the gospel can humble us without destroying us. It tells us that we needed a savior, that we needed a substitute, that we needed a sacrifice. And yet it tells us that we have one in Christ. So we have to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. Hear me, no one talks to you more than you talk to you. From the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, you are self-talking. I am self-talking. There is an inner dialogue and we must learn to turn that self-dialogue into the gospel, into preaching to ourselves. So what does that look like? I wanna read to you a quote uh, from one of my favorite pastors, a guy named Joe Thorne says this about preaching the gospel to ourselves. Preaching the gospel to ourselves is calling ourselves to return to Jesus for forgiveness, cleansing, empowerment, and purpose. It is answering doubts and fears with the promises of God. Do my sins condemn me? Jesus has covered them all in his blood. Do my works fall short? Jesus' righteousness counted as mine. Are the world, the devil, and my own flesh conspiring against me? Not even a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my Father in heaven. And he has promised to care for me and keep me forever. Can I really deny myself, carry my cross, and follow Jesus? Yes, for God is at work within me, willing and working in me for his own pleasure. This is what it looks like to preach to ourselves. You answer your fears, your doubts, your anxieties, the self-condemnation, the self-sufficiency with the promises of the gospel found in the word. Hear me, in order to do that, you have to know the word of God. You have to abide in the word of God. You have to give the word of God roots in your heart. It can't just be sitting in your lap. It must be written on your heart. And so we must return to scripture and preach the gospel to ourselves. I was hanging out with my good friend, Andy Barefoot. You might know him. He sings here. Um, uh, last, we were going to a lunch together in his car and... Uh, he had his phone sitting in the cup holder in the middle and a, and a reminder popped up on his phone. And I looked down, because I'm, I'm, I'm very nosy, and uh, I looked down and it said, the father of all things delights in you as you are. And I just was like, that is so cool. Like, I love that about Andy Barefoot. Andy Barefoot is a friend of mine who understands that he's loved by grace and that the father delights in him for who he is. And he helps me as someone who struggles with self-condemnation. Can I tell you, that's the side of the horse I tend to fall off on. We all have one. That's my default is I'm not worthy. How could God love me? That's the, that's the lie I have to make war on. And seeing Andy who really understands that and practicing preaching the gospel to himself and setting reminders on his it ministered to me. Hear me, we need habits and practices like that in our lives. Reminders of who we are in Christ. So I thank my brother Andy for model, modeling that for me. The disciples had to return to Jesus for their miracle, for this to be acted out. They got to be used as a part of it. Are you returning to Jesus daily? Verse 17, we're almost done. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. 12 basketfuls. So this is, I mean, can we just stop and just say, this is incredible. 
Like, this is amazing. Five loaves of bread, two fish, 15,000 people likely are fed, and there's 12 baskets left over. And I always read this, and I just thought the 12 baskets, what that's about is just showing that Jesus is showing off, right? Like, Jesus is just awesome. There's 12, he didn't just feed everyone. There's 12 basketfuls too. God is awesome. But there's more to it than that. Listen to this. John 6, 12. When they had all had enough to eat, this is John's version, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. Let nothing be wasted. Jesus isn't just invested in like, hey, let's stockpile this, show how much I did. Okay, guys, I don't know if you noticed, I didn't just feed everyone, 12 baskets. Good job, Jesus. It's more than that. Jesus has other needs in mind. He says, this is resources God has provided. Not only were these people gonna be fed in order, in an orderly way that's reverential to God for his provision, but now we're gonna collect this and these disciples traveled, I learned this this week, and I just love this. They traveled with uh, baskets called kofinas, which are, which are baskets for bread. And they, they were covered baskets and they carried them with them into the villages they went to. And even though the disciples didn't have a lot, this, the purpose of these baskets was to give to those in need around them. It was about doing justice. It was about mercy. And they're gonna now take these 12 baskets of leftovers and they're not just gonna rot in the field, get moldy in the, in the dew. They are going to be carried to those in need. They are going to be stewarded for God's glory in the cities that surround. And this is incredible. See, every time God does a miracle in our lives, his primary, one of his primary purposes is that that miracle, that the abundance of it would flow out of us into those around us. It doesn't terminate with us. When God is generous in our lives, he calls us to be generous in the lives of others. He calls us to order our lives. Why? Because when we are ordered in the way we steward the resources of God, we're more able to be generous with the resources God has given us. We're more able to track where we can give and what the needs are around us and what our actual ability is to meet that need. But you have to trust Jesus to do that, right? You can't be generous if you don't trust. You can't be generous if you have a scarcity mentality. You can't do justice and love mercy if you're hoarding your time and your energy and your money in fear. You have to trust Jesus. And this is a picture of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus gave all of himself. He left nothing back. He held nothing back. He went to the cross and was crucified and bled out in our place so that those farthest, those most in need could be reached with salvation if only they would trust in Jesus. And they would find that in all seasons, in every season of life, Jesus is able to turn a little into a lot and be enough. Do you believe that Jesus is enough this morning? What miracle are you waiting on? I'm telling you this. The place to find it is in the hands of Jesus in returning to Jesus moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. It's an exercise. It's a force of will sometimes. But it's always worth it. Praise the Lord that we have a God of supernatural provision. Let's seek him together. Let's pray. In Jesus' name, God, I pray that you would help us to understand that we have more than enough in you. That even when it looks like things are lacking, even when we walk through valleys and we don't understand what you're doing, you're with us. You're providing you have a plan, you're making a way that you understand our hurts, that you understand our needs, that you understand our hungers, our spiritual hungers, our relational hungers, our physical hungers. You have a plan to meet them all if we will stay close to you and continue returning to you for the miracle. So Father, make us faithful to depend on you moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, as we watch you turn a little into enough. It's in Jesus' name, amen.